you know, it's a classic about what business, like the shipping business. Uh, Matson thought they were in the steamship business, not the transportation business. So when airlines came in, they, what happened? Oh, what happened to our business? Somebody came in, somebody came in and disrupted the industry. And I have had the honor and the pleasure to be allowed to disrupt several industries. <laughs> I've been called a troublemaker. Before any world-changing innovation, there was a moment, an event, a realization that sparked the idea. Before It Happened is a show about that idea. Each week, we take a deep dive into a singular light bulb moment that inspired the visionaries to push forward and change our lives. I'm your host, Donna Laughlin. Nearly 20 years ago, I launched a public relations firm with the sole purpose of helping visionaries tell their stories to the world. Now, two decades later, I want to share those stories and more with you. This podcast takes you on a journey before it happened with the innovators who imagine and are still imagining the future. Ever since I was a child, I was curious about so many things. I spent hours in the garage at science fairs, sifting through popular science, popular mechanics, and pretty much any journal I could get my hands on, exploring and discovering how things work from transportation and AI to just about anything you can put in your home, office, or pocket. On this show, you'll hear from the innovators themselves as they tell their stories of how they brought those visions to life. Grab your passport and let's go on a journey together. On today's episode, we're going to meet one of the most important Silicon Valley innovators you've probably never heard of. Al Alcorn was a disruptor before anyone had ever heard of disruptors. In the 1970s, he was the man behind Pong, the first ever commercial video game. He later created the first in-home video game console for Atari. While at Atari, Al hired a young, awkward engineer named Steve Jobs, whom he mentored and even advised as Jobs built the prototype for the first Apple computer. He helped launch the first tech incubator and has advised countless entrepreneurs and engineers as they develop their own world-changing innovations. I was thrilled to sit down with Al to talk about not just his groundbreaking creations, but also his life and education and the beginning of his journey to becoming, as he puts it, a career troublemaker. Al Alcorn was born and raised in the heart of the Bay Area, in San Francisco's famed Haight-Ashbury District. But this was before Haight-Ashbury became known as ground zero for the 60s counterculture. Al says his Haight-Ashbury of the 1950s and early 60s was a wonderful place to grow up. His parents were divorced and his father was often away traveling as a merchant marine. From a very early age, his parents noticed Al had a special talent for fixing just about anything. I was always interested in how things work constantly. And so I was taking things apart and breaking things and fixing things. And my father decided to enroll me in a correspondence course from RCA in radio and television repair. And my neighbor across the street and the Haight-Ashbury had a television repair shop. So I was always into electronics, wanting to know how things worked. And, and I decided, well, I guess I should be an electrical engineer. Did not really understand quite what that meant, but I knew it involved electronics and I liked that. And I was 
enthused about that. And so, and then I fortunately was able to go to Lowell High School and I stumbled into a great education. And then because of my football, I got onto into Berkeley Cal campus, stumbled into that, avoided going in the draft, going to Vietnam and dying. And the rest is history. So you go to Berkeley. What were the first core classes that you took that just ignited you and, and got you even more on the path of your career? Gosh, you know, Berkeley in 1966-67. Fortunately, one of the first classes, I wanted to be an analog engineer as opposed to a digital engineer or a computer guy. I liked radios and televisions. Fortunately, Cal only offered a degree in electrical engineering and computer science. So one of the first classes I, the first class you had to take as an engineering student there was a course called EE1, which was programming. And it was programming on a mainframe computer because that's all that existed. They had a big control data or IBM computer and you go down to the lab and, and you'll write your program at home, go down to the lab, punch it on punch cards, a deck of IBM punch cards, which nobody sees anymore. And you'd submit those and they would run the they would run it on the big computer. You'd come back a few hours later and you get a printout and see what happened. So I was forced to learn Fortran and Algol. Thank God. Let's <laughs> go understand the concept of programming, even though I'm not really a programmer. So that got me going. And and of course the physics that they taught at Berkeley were just was fabulous. And I found that fascinating. I mean, I'm getting, you know, lower division lectures in physics from Professor Parker, who was in the Manhattan Project, you know, I mean, it was just a thrill. Lowell prepared me real well, and and I really enjoyed that stuff. So uh, it was fairly fun. Was he one of your inspirations in terms of more exploratory computing science? No, no, no. My inspiration was coming from my head. I was just fascinated by what could be built and what could be done. And so, I mean, everybody, the campus the whole environment, as you know, at Berkeley is very stimulating and thought-provoking and all that. <laughs> I used to walk through the School of Engineering and kind of hang out over by the old mine where the students would congregate and hoping that the DNA would just maybe trickle off of me. But, you know, we're talking about a time where the Silicon Valley and, and, the, and the term Silicon Valley didn't even exist, right? Did you realize at that time that you were this whole new era was happening in computers or were you just kind of grooving with it and not realizing that a movement was beginning to shape? Yeah, I I had no sense of any kind of a movement or anything. And as you said, Silicon Valley wasn't really at that time called Silicon Valley. Obviously, there were semiconductor companies starting up and there was Lockheed and all that military stuff. And so I knew that a lot of electro-engineering and stuff went on down the peninsula. And then I stumbled into it. I've seen pictures of these giant mainframes. What, what are they really like to operate? I mean, they're really noisy. And can you kind of give us a taste of like what that was working with these giant computers? You weren't allowed to get anywhere near them. I mean, it, it, put it this way, there was this uh, huge mountain and at the top was this brilliant oracle called the uh, Control Data 6400. And it was serviced by acolytes and you can only get to the front door and supplicate before this thing and say please run my program please and they would say well okay but come back you know uh, in a half a day and that was pretty slow and boring 
tedious, but that's the way it was. So you never had to touch these. It was this. And so the idea eventually of a personal computer that you could have something on your desk that could do that and could be affordable wasn't even thought of at that point. That was just a, a fantasy. However, in my desperation, because of fascination with what the, what this thing called a computer could do, me and another student, a troublemaker student like me, found there was a terminal in the, you like to walk to the engineering buildings, well, in the basement of the chem building on campus, and at that time, all these buildings were wide open 24 hours, there was a terminal that was connected to the computer. And at night, there was nobody there. And you could walk in, and we had figured out how to log in and fire up the computer, and we would actually run our programs and get the data right there, like a personal computer. And I remember one time the professor, there was about maybe 100 kids in the class, <laughs> and he, somebody is using my computer, and I'm getting billed for the time because it was like this oracle, and you only had so many minutes or seconds of time, and he'd get kicked off, and, <laughs> and he never found us. <laughs> but yeah, I was a troublemaker. So let's talk about your first job after college. I believe it was Ampex. Yeah, well, that was actually during college in the work study program, and and I had put my resume out through the HR or student whatever counselors, and nobody nobody replied to my thin resume to get a job. And my mother, because she was working at this insurance company, her boss knew the president of Ampex, pulled some strings and got me in to there. So that was how I got into, thank God, it was the best place I could have ever gone. I got and so I worked there in 1968 for six months, and it was wonderful. I mean, you talk about mentoring. I'm working with guys that invented videotape recording, and we're designing leading-edge products, latest technologies, and it was great. It was really wonderful, and I made almost $1,000 a month at that point. Well, at Ampex, Al met Nolan Bushnell, a fellow electrical engineer who had an interest in arcade games. He also had an entrepreneurial spirit, which Al himself lacked at the time. The two became friends, and when Nolan left Ampex to start what would later become Atari, one of his first creations was an early arcade game called Computer Space. It was successful, but didn't make the kind of splash Nolan had hoped for. When it came time to develop his next game, he thought of Al. So let's talk about your first meeting with Nolan Bushnell. I mean, what was that that water cooler moment like? I know he's from Utah. He's he's Mormon. You're from San Francisco, California. You have different backgrounds. Oh yeah, yeah. I was halfway to being a hippie. Yeah, Nolan. But the first meeting, he was. This was all very much in the engineering world, and he worked in a little different group in the same location I was, and. You know, we saw each other, but I didn't work really with him or for him at the time, although we were in that group and he was a okay engineer. The project he was working on was a very ambitious project and it really fizzled out. But he impressed me more of a entrepreneurial type. He was, here's this young man right out of college and he wanted to invest in stocks and things like that, which is not something that normal people did. You had to be a wealthy person to buy stocks and bonds. You just, you just didn't do it. The average person couldn't do it. And so he put together a group 
of investors in the engineering department at Ampex, and they were able to buy some stocks and stuff. And so, wow, he was out there doing that. I didn't know. Anything. I just wanted to do engineering. I didn't know anything about finance or stuff like that. So it's not like the the dot com bubble when every engineer and every employee would get an allocation of stock. No, in fact, stock. That was a very interesting thing at that time. Stock and stock options were something that rich people had, the upper class had, and the worker bees didn't get that. And uh, that was, if you read the history, that was the big deal at Fairchild, which caused the spin out. Fairchild wasn't giving stock to any of the engineers, only the investors. And the, so, well, screw you. They'll start Intel and we'll give out a lot of stock. So that was really one of the first companies that did that. But we were right in there with them. We wanted to share ownership and all that with everybody. So, but yeah, that was changing in those days. And was the word entrepreneur even used at that time? Yeah, I think so. Not very often. (laughs) And Nolan didn't do it the way you're supposed to do it. And not the way it's done these days, but (laughs) very, very clever. So you you meet Nolan. Nolan has already done some video game development or thoughts. You had the computer background and you have a lot of curiosity. So how did that just kind of ignite and then become Atari? How did that come about? My background, again, was analog engineering. But because I went to Cal Berkeley, I had to learn a little bit about programming and digital circuits, too. Okay, I could do that, too. But I really wanted to design this analog stuff. But all of a sudden, the digital stuff became more and more important. The fact that I was freshly trained in the latest digital technology was very handy. So I kind of jumped in both worlds, digital and analog. So what was the first project that you worked on at Atari? Was it Pong or what was before Pong? No, it was Pong. It was, you know, right out of the chute. I want you to build this, uh, he find this game, which apparently he'd seen the Magnavox Odyssey, which was, he could tell it was a terrible game. But the concept was the simplest, the simplest possible thing you could call a video game. You know, one moving object, two paddles and a score and maybe sound. And, you know, that was nothing simpler. And to this day, there's nothing simpler. And it's great because kids can can create it with programming in, you know, in a half a day and play Pong. So walk us through kind of your thought process. I mean, were there other options? Was it like going to be, you know, aliens or in cars? Oh, no, no, no. What I think happened. Okay, so Nolan, I was not, I'm, I'm 24 years old. I'm naive. I don't think about the coin-op business or any of this stuff but I'm a good engineer and computer space was modest success. I think they sold maybe a thousand machines. Nobody copied it or anything. And Nolan, I think at the time believed that what the market wanted was a more complicated game than computer space. And so he, I think he thought a driving game was the goal, a third person driving game. But he knew that was going to be a real tough engineering challenge. So he wanted to give me something just to get my chops going as an exercise, the simplest thing, with no thought that it would be a big success. Of course, he lied to me and told me that he had a contract with General Electric and that we're going to build this game. It was going to be a home game, which meant the cost had to be around $50 in parts, something like that. And I thought that was really ambitious. But look, I'll just start building this thing the way I would build it and see what happens and see how far I get. And that's that's how I approached it. And never occurred to me that uh, nobody from General Electric ever called or 
wrote a letter or came by that was all a lie, you know, but hey, it wound up working out. So what was the period of time between the whiteboard or chalkboard conversation to first 001 Pong? The first sign of life of a playable game was probably about two months, two or three months. Started in June of 72, at the end of June. So by August, July, whatever, we had something up and running. And then Nolan kept saying, oh, and Ted, too. I had to have score digits. We got to technical discussions about that. <laughs> and then we kept adding things to it because I believed it was going to be a game to be played. And if you just had the ball bouncing back and forth, it was no fun. It was extremely boring. And so you add speed up. So after a few hits, it goes faster. You do various things to make it playable. And the parts count and the cost was way beyond what was ever going to be a home video game. So I'm kind of depressed because it's in a way it's kind of a failure. Yeah, I got it to work, but it's going to cost like $100, $200 in parts. And so what do we go from here? Well, pretty soon a game became so playable that I guess Nolan said, well, hell, let's just put it in the box and put it out in a location with some of our pinball machines and, and see if anybody plays it, you know, because it was not supposed to be. In Nolan's mind, I don't think he thought anybody would really play it much. What was your first, what was that experience like when you physically saw this, the idea and then the actual arcade console come together and play it yourself? What was that feeling like? I guess the moment was when we put it out on location and somebody actually came up that didn't know me, wasn't a friend or humoring me, oh, it's a beautiful game, and played it. And it was like, wow, somebody actually put money in this thing. Cool. And you put the first punk game in a bar called Andy Caps? Yeah, sure. We put it out there at Andy Caps, the bartender, the owner, the Bill Gaddis, and he was a good guy. And if something went wrong, he'd give us a call. And, you know, he was on our side. And I remember putting it out on top of a, in that box, you pictures of that first prototype, which is now in a museum, putting on, on a barrel and watching somebody put money in. Nolan and I grabbed a beer and watched and asked them, you know, what did you think of the game? And these guys said, oh, yeah, I know the guy who invented that game. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I said, save the bullshit for the girls. <laughs> it was kind of a, a little bit of a fraternity moment, right? At the time, it didn't seem like much, you know, but yeah, looking back on it, oh yeah, it was uh, the beginning of an industry. Let's talk about Atari a little bit more. So you surrounded yourself by hippies in San Francisco. You go to Berkeley and then Steve Jobs responds to an, an ad in the Sansi Mercury News, the way I understand. Can you share a little bit, you know, what was that, this young hippie walking in the door? What was that moment like? And what was he hired for? Well... This was back, I guess, I think in 1973, our offices by this time were in Los Gatos, California. We were the most fun place to work in Silicon Valley at that point in time, one of the coolest places to work, I guess. And so we would get people coming in to talk, to work. And I was 24, 25 years old, and I get these experts come in and want to work. And I learned that, hey... Talk to these guys, you know, and, and I have to confess, I was young and inexperienced. I'm vice president of engineering or research and development, and I'm having guys far smarter than me 
working for me. And that was uncomfortable, you know, and I finally learned that, no, this is great. You want to have guys that are smarter than you work for you. And maybe you could take credit for the work that they do. So one day in the afternoon, our personnel lady, Penny Chapler came in and she said, I know you like to get, talk to these guys that just drop in. So we got one and, and he's young and bring him in. So, uh, you know, come on in. And, uh, Steve Jobs walks in, you know, this hippie kid. I guess he was 17 or 18. The guy, he dropped out of Reed College, which is a liberal arts college, not an engineering school, but he had this buddy, turned out to be Wozniak, working at HP. And so he knew wiring, he knew soldering. He was kind of, I I needed a tech, a tech. The way it worked in those days, we had like an engineer, maybe another engineer, and a tech as a team, two or three guys or gals working on a project, a particular game. And we needed a tech. And all of a sudden, this kid shows up and he had this passion and enthusiasm. And I figured, God, he's got to be cheap if he's that age and he's a hippie. So we'll hire him. (laughs) And the passion, I mean, this passion the kid had. And if you're going to hire somebody for a janitor or any position, Passion is really important. And uh, thank God I hired him. Jesus Christ. And there's not very many people going to say that they actually hired Steve Jobs and became their mentor. Was Wozniak hanging out, coming by for lunch too? Yeah, Woz worked at Hewlett Packard. And Hewlett Packard was a real company. You know, they had office hours and stuff like that. (laughs) And we weren't. So Jobs didn't get along with the engineers that well. For various reasons, he he would criticize them and whatever. And so he finally worked out a deal where he would come in after hours, after five o'clock and work all night. Fine with me, as long as the engineer he was working with, Don Lang, didn't mind. And his buddy Waz worked at Hewlett Packard and would come over at night to hang out with Steve, with Jobs at Atari in manufacturing facility was in the back and we would have like maybe 50 to 100 machines on the floor arcade machines burned in being you know built and tested and if you want if somebody would play them while they were being burnt in that was great because maybe you could find a fault or a defect which would get fixed before it got shipped so that was fine with me we didn't care he could come in he was never an employee but uh, we were life was open and free he'd come and go with jobs and he was charming fascinating guy i mean Holy moly, <laughs> he is a savant. He's a genius. And yeah, he turned my HP calculator into a clock and all kinds of, yeah. You still have that? No. no, no that would no, be a hoot. No. So I'm curious, you guys are probably going down the street, hanging out at Cary Nations where the Pet Rock was also created around that period? Actually, you mentioned the Pet Rock. The guy who created the Pet Rock worked for us there was a contractor. He had an advertising agency or something. And so he was actually on the payroll sort of as a consultant. And all of a sudden, we don't get any work out of him. <laughs> He's doing this stupid pet rock thing, buying all these rocks in Mexico and shipping them out. And like, okay, so we had to hire, you had to get somebody else. <laughs> he got distracted doing pet rock. So we, we were in the middle of that. There's <laughs> not like a vortex of creativity happening. So you and the and the, the phenomenon of Pong, and now you have Jobs and then his buddy was. How quickly after that introduction did the Apple idea spawn? Well, it, did, it didn't happen right away. Jobs, after about working for me for about six months, 
Jobs comes in and says, I'm going to quit or time off or whatever. I'm going to go to India to meet my guru. I said, fine, right if you get work. <laughs> you know? So he goes off to India for, I don't know, three or four months dealing with their guru. And one day, Ron Wayne, one of my engineers, said, hey, Steve's back. I said, Steve who? He says, Steve Jobs. He says, oh, yeah, I remember him. Yeah, we'll bring him in. So he trots in. He's wearing a saffron robe, shaved head, barefoot, Hare Krishna, full tilt. And he comes in, and I'm going, wow. And he gives me a Baba Ramdas book, Be Here Now, and says, hey, can I have my job back? I says, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and that, that started his second career, so to speak, at Atari. And by this time, Waz had created his own desktop computer called the Apple, and he was creating the Apple II, which would be a producible, saleable, finished product. And they offered it, both Waz and Jobs, to us to build. I set up a meeting with the president of Atari at the time, Joe Keenan, to see if uh, Joe wanted to, to build that, get into the computer business. I advised him that it was a bad idea because I didn't think anything would come of this personal computer nonsense since there were no programs to do anything on them that the average person would want. Boy, was I wrong on that. So you were an Apple doubter. Well, no, I was really close with them. I was friends with Steve, and I thought it was really cute, and I wanted to see how far it would go before it blew up. And all of a sudden, a year or two later, I got contacted by Dan Bricklin, one of the founders of VisiCalc. Remember VisiCalc? VisiCalc was the first spreadsheet program ever, and it worked on the Apple II computer. And uh-oh, when I saw that, all of a sudden, I saw what the personal computer could do. You know, with that program in an Apple II, you could run a finance department. It was a game changer, and it was enough that clearly people would buy the Apple II just to run that program, which only ran on the Apple II. And like, uh-oh, something's happening here. But then it was, they were already off and running. And it was, it was fun to be involved on the periphery of those guys. I helped them out. When they first started, they were not able to buy parts because they were so young. They had no credit, no trade or anything. And so we would sell them parts just because they were the same parts that we were using in our video games. We would sell them at 5 or 10% over our cost. So the first Apple computers were parts from Atari. While Jobs was working on the Apple computer from his garage, Atari's new priority was bringing arcade games into the home. Al was tasked with building a home unit that could connect with your television. It was the late 1970s, and Al was essentially inventing what we all know today as a video game console. We started out, as you know, as an arcade company, and we had the Pong was an arcade machine. But Nolan had always defined Atari as more than just an arcade company. The motto was innovative leisure. And from day one, I mean, even when he gave me this Pong project, it was supposed to be a home game, which was impossible at that point in time. But that was in his mind. And so whereas the dominant manufacturer of coin-operated entertainment, Bally, making pinball machines and driving games and such, they were in Chicago, had been doing it for 30 years. They defined themselves as a coin-operated game manufacturer. And Nolan had the broader vision. As soon as we could make a home unit, that was it. And he told me to do it. 
And I knew it had to be on a custom chip, single piece of silicon. And I didn't think I could do it, but I figured, okay, I'll give it a shot and quiet Nolan down because he wouldn't shut up until I did something to see if we could make a custom chip. And God damn it, we did it. I couldn't believe it. It was like, that was like, holy moly. When the chip came back and it worked, it, it was like, it was like a dog chasing a car and he caught the car. Now what do you do with it? And, and we had no marketing, no business plan. There was no consumer electronics in the van. It was like, we're just, okay. And we called our marketing guy, sales guy, called up Sears Roebuck in Chicago. And long story short, they're selling Pong in the catalog, a home version of Pong. Like, wow. And then I remember they're selling this thing and it was exclusive to them. And I'm watching Monday Night Football and there's an ad for Pong out of Sears on Monday Night Football. Like, oh my God, this is, anyway, we're in the consumer business and the numbers have changed. And Bally had the nerve to come back and say, what are you doing? You're ruining our business. People are going to be playing the games at home. They're not going to play them in the arcade. And I go, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We're making the games. These idiots, you know, it's a classic about what business, like the shipping business. Uh, Matson thought they were in the steamship business, not the transportation business. So when airlines came in, they, <laughs> what happened? Oh, what happened to our business? Somebody came in, somebody came in and disrupted the industry. Wow. So eventually you sold to Warner Communications and you ended up leaving the company. What was that relationship like? The honeymoon was fine for a year or two then, but by 1980, they had put their own management in from the East Coast and Atari's sales soared to the billion dollar region on the Atari VCS, something that was designed before Warner took over. And it was less and less fun. And so I went back to engineering to see if I could do a new product. The way Silicon Valley works and innovation works that if you don't obsolete your own products with new products, somebody else will. It's very fast moving. You can't just sit there. And this was the problem. The East Coast guys, Drake Asar, he thought, well, once you have this Atari VCS, it'll just sell for decades. And like, no, 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 no. <laughs> You've got to have the next one. You got to put yourself out of business because if you don't, somebody else will. I want to jump to and talk a little bit about some of the incubators that you work with. So you've had this amazing career. You've influenced and mentored the founders of Apple along the way. And then you you go into this phase where you're, you're involved in Catalyst Technologies. Can you share a little bit about that? Right after, yeah. Once, Well, Warner had taken all the executives and founders of Atari, the company they bought, and basically kicked them out, put us on the beach. So we were being paid full salary and everything not to show up until we had a the only kind of non-compete that was enforceable in California, because as you may know, non-compete contracts are not enforceable in California. Anyway, they had one that worked. And so we were going to be free from the contract in mid-83. So about mid-82, Nolan starts fomenting what we're going to do <laughs> when this thing expires. So we were all revved up and we actually started before. Me. <laughs> what's Atari going to, what's Warner going to do? Are they going to sue us? That would look good in the paper. So anyway, we started, Nolan started 
an incubator, one of the first incubators, maybe the first, called the Catalyst. We called it the Rust Bucket in this two-story rusty building. And there were numerous companies. ETAC, the first in-car car navigator, was invented there. I was involved with that a little bit. I started a company called Kuma, which would uh, sell uh, video game in reloadable cartridges so you could take them into the uh, a kiosk like like a like a video game plug your cartridge in and download a new product into it without having to buy a new cartridge it was a more cost effective and easier way to distribute video games it also solved the retailer problem of what games to stock because they didn't know what would sell and so there was a lot of excess inventory but then I worked at Apple. I got hired at Apple as an Apple fellow. And I would not have worked at Apple if Steve Jobs was there. I really didn't want to go through that. He was my employee. I was not want to be his. But he was gone. And they offered me a good deal. And it was exciting. And I, frankly, I was in research and development. And I'd, I'm not a research engineer. I didn't think I was. I just built things and made them work. And I was more entrepreneurial type of engineer, I guess. And I had some, did some stuff, and I'm some of the proudest stuff I ever did. I did at Apple, inventing, not inventing, but greatly affecting the outcome and the production of MPEG of, of the videos on the computer. How to get video into the computer as a data type so people could communicate, and that has resulted that changed that industry, and has resulted in the internet being clogged with videos of puppies and kittens and stupid things like that. What year did you go to Apple? I went in 84, 85, I don't remember, and left in the late 80s. I was there about four years. That was like the when the Lisa came out? No, it was after. It was after that. The Macintosh had already been a product. It had come out. Yeah, so I, I joined that. So you're one of the, the few that could actually say that you hired Steve Jobs, but then years later, multiple years later, you went back and you were an advisor and employee. Yeah. Beware of the enemies that you make. You may be working for them. <laughs> <laughs> After Steve left Apple, he created Next. Were you ever involved with that company? No, no, I was not involved at all in that. In fact, when he was starting that up, I was being recruited at Apple. I already accepted a job, a position as Apple fellow. Steve Jobs called my home, my wife answered, and he wanted to talk to me. And he said, where's Al? And she said, oh, he's working at Apple. And he went, uh, no shit, and hung up. And that was the last I spoke to him. <laughs> I think he was going to wanted to hire me at Next, but now I was working for the enemy. When you look back on all the things you've done in your career, what are you most proud of? I think what was... Where I'm proudest of is that I was allowed through my career, for whatever reason, to disrupt a bunch of industries. And one of the other ones was the slot machine business. Did you know about that? No. Tell me about it. Oh, yeah. I got a call one day from Dave Morse, who was an angel investor who had started Amiga. You've heard of the Amiga computer and that stuff. And he said, hey, let's start a company and, and get the slot machine business. And I had looked at them when we were at Atari, but the regulations for getting in there were just ridiculous. And so we gave up on that. But at this point now we had, you know, we had money, we had investors and we could do it. And long story short, I put, put a team together and we started a company called Silicon Gaming and changed the way 
slot machines are made. And the, all the machines on the floor in the casinos in Vegas now use that technology. When we came into the business in the late 90s, slot machines were three reels spinning behind glass. And we changed it to a graphic display with video and multimedia and sound and made it an entertaining thing. And we had to get the regs changed and all that. So that was really an exciting experience to go into that industry and really disrupt that industry. I have a question about user experience, because obviously the the engagement and user experience with Pong, right? And then the evolution of Apple, and then what you just described with slot machines. User experience is so important. So how did you learn about user experience being an engineer? Very good question. This is a big problem that most people don't realize. And I first became aware of it at Atari making, you know, doing arcade games. And we'd sit around in planning sessions. No one would have these ideas for games, the engineers. We'd all contribute ideas and various ideas would get picked. And the problem was, and this happened once or twice, was we'd make a game that just appealed to us, Nolan, Joe, we were all engineers. <laughs> and you might have made a game that just only appeals to engineers. That's a very small market. So you really have to understand the customer. And the slot machine business was a great example because most of the engineers that I hired, they didn't gamble. They know how the odds work. And you know, my attitude was, I'm not going to gamble. I'll just mail them the money and save the airfare. You know, it's good. They're going to win. Why would I want to do that? Well, now all of a sudden we're making a machine for people who play these things and like them. And we really have to understand why, what is it? How do we know a good game from a bad game? Stuff like that. So in this little office I had in downtown Saratoga, I actually managed to put in two or three full online slot machines with hoppers and everything, which are I'm told they're illegal <laughs> in California. <laughs> anyway, we had three or four of them there, and we'd play them, and we'd go to Vegas, and we worked with Andrew Pascal. We got inside the casinos to understand. Yeah, you know, we had to educate and understand the business from repair, distribution, the whole thing. And that was really a challenge. So how much did you know about video games when you were at Atari? Did you play? Have you been a gamer? Are you a gamer? No. <laughs> my pleasure is in making them work. I mean, like, how do you make a video game on a raster scan television set? You know, television set was never meant to do that. And so you have to hack in and create this signal that stim and it was a and remember I said video was an analog, perfectly analog environment. Pong, the electronic board for Pong was an entirely digital circuit that made a uh, analog signal a video game entirely digital so yeah it crossed boundaries it was uh, misbegotten <laughs> a funny story one time i was at one of these uh, old-time coin op arcade conventions the old time early games and i was invited to attend and i'm there and there's a uh, i see an, an original pong arcade machine sitting there and there's a young man playing and i'm guessing he was 10 or 11 playing it by himself. So I went over and I said, hey, I'll play with you. And so I'm playing with him and I'm beating him. And I said, you know, at one point I was the best Pong player in the world. And he looked at me, he said, no. I go, yeah, I was the only Pong player in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so I read that Nolan said that Pong was the, was a social lubricant. What does that make you then? You're the, you're the, you're the 
the sperm donor and the there, father uh, of all games? Uh, the KY <laughs> jelly of the video game industry. I mean, you got to think about it. When Pong arcade game was first introduced, the machines in the environment and the coin-operated entertainment business were cigarette machines, pinball machines, and driving games. And the pinball machines were decorated with, you know, naked ladies and that kind of stuff and uh, very garish. And Nolan said, no, 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 no. I want it to be very staid and conservative so it can go into restaurants and stuff. They're not going to put a pinball machine in a nice restaurant. So that's how it came out. And it became, all of a sudden, it became a game that women could be as good as men and it could be a social thing. And if you think about it, Pong is one of the few, if not the only, video game ever produced that required two people. There's no one-player mode in Pong. So it required two people. So, yeah, I think one of the reasons for its success was that women could play it and you didn't have to be a biker or something to play the thing. So I think that was part of it. You started a hackathon for kids, which is really cool. Is that something you're still doing? Well, that thing, because of COVID, it's really in hiatus. So no, I'm not. I'd love to do it again. It's really fun. I want to give back. So tell me about the the program and, and how you inspire kids to think like you do or Well, I just the idea is not to teach. It's not to be didactic. It's a one day kind of a fun hackathon aimed at junior high school age kids that haven't discovered girls or boys yet. And we want to simply give them the opportunity to be successful and create something in that field, either a game in software, solder up a board, create an environment, do a 3D printing, anything. And so we successful engineers in Silicon Valley join together. We may get 30 of them and act as mentors. And we simply sit down. We don't teach them. We say, what do you want to do? And let's get started. Let's make some mistakes and we'll show you how to be successful and something hopefully they can then take home and show off to their friends and maybe get inspired to say, hey, this could be a fun thing for my career and my life, you know, just to get their imagination going. And so that's what's fun. I mean, well, I do a little thing with soldering a little board that blinks a light and they take parts. And for the first time, some kids have actually built something of their own that they could take and show off. So. It was fun, and I hope to do it again. Al, I've never met anyone that's actually in the Smithsonian. What do you mean? You're going to have me dipped in Cosmoline and put me in the Smithsonian? What do you, what do you mean? No, I, I believe that one of th- there is a, a Pong in the Smithsonian. Yeah, but it's not has nothing to do with what I built other than the name. What? you got to be kidding me. So the Smithsonian does not have the original Pong. That's a touchy story. That particular real prototype is at the Computer History Museum down in uh, Mountain View, California. And it's on display because it is the really the first video game. The Smithsonian, strange, they apparently assumed that that prototype did not exist, even though I owned it at the time. And they had some friends of mine at Bally create, build something. I don't know what they have on display, but it has nothing to do with anything I made other than the name. <laughs> so I, I don't know why they did that. But what I'm more impressed with <laughs> is I am inducted in, in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Pong was 
is collected as an artifact in the architecture thing. And not the cabinetry, but the game. And they displayed it, and they had it on, on the wall. And I went back. There's the Pong game playing, and you can play it. And there's a little plaque. And it had Al Alcorn, born 1948, as though I'm an artist. And like my daughter, by the way, Jessica, is an artist. And she went to Rhode Island School of Design, worked at LucasArts. And I said, hey, hey, Jess, I got stuff in the Museum of Modern Art. Okay, you're the artist. Where's yours? <laughs> How the hell did that happen? That was just, I mean, that's something I never thought when I was a starving student at Cal fixing television that I'd be in the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> that was Al Alcorn. Despite the impact he's had on the tech industry over the last 40 plus years, he remains remarkably humble about his career. He credits pretty much all his success to luck. None of it was part of some master plan he had hatched as a kid. Al says he was simply exactly in the right place at exactly the right time. Before It Happened is produced by me, Donna Laughlin, along with Studio Pod Media. The executive producer is Katie Sunku Wood. And all episodes are written and developed by Jack Brewer. Our show coordinator is Deanna Morency, with additional editing and music provided by Nota Lab. Make sure to subscribe to Before It Happened wherever you listen to podcasts.